that this is book two, uh, the gospel of God lover, and it may have been an individual or he may have just generically been saying, I'm writing to people who love God and want to know him. But uh, this is book two of the gospel according to, to Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The word of the Lord. Let's hear it, brothers and sisters. Are you grateful? Thanks be to God. Okay. Some texts, it's hard to say that when you're reading an imprecatory psalm or something of that sort, but this is a great one, so we should full-throatedly respond. This is a familiar text, I'm sure, to all of you, and I want to try to draw out four, four lessons from this text that I think very naturally arise because of the words that Jesus was speaking to his apostles. He was instructing them, but through them he is instructing us, and I hope to make that clear for anyone who may doubt that and think this was spoken to them, we live in a different time, a different way, it's not for us. Four things, the first is, note that in verse two we read that the apostles to whom he appeared, with whom he met, to whom he spoke, were those whom he had called. That's the end of verse two. These whom he had called. Now we realize that those first apostles so named had a unique calling. They were people who had witnessed the resurrected Lord. And yet Paul who came later said, like a person who was born at the wrong time, I received a special revelation as well of the risen Christ. But I would argue that each and every one of us who has been made a child of God has been told clearly in his word, you just look at how often Paul speaks of it, Romans 8, those whom he called, them he also justified them. You and I are the called of God. Now here's where I really hope you'll not tune out. Within Presbyterian circles, we are known for emphasizing, and all Reformed people, for emphasizing God's sovereignty and salvation. God is the one who calls. We don't choose him, he chooses us. We don't save ourselves, he saves us. It's all of grace. Now the Bible's clear about that. 
But what I think we too often miss, and too many people push back against, is the fact that the doctrine of election and predestination in Scripture is largely a mission doctrine. And we just want, for the most part, to emphasize personal salvation. Thank you, Lord, for choosing me. I'm saved. No, no, that's not how the Bible sees it. Years ago, I was asked by uh, a reformed group to travel up to D.C. They were having a conference on the Ordo Salutis, a fancy name for the plan of salvation. And they wanted me to open by speaking on predestination and election. And I said, I'd love to do that, but you need to know that if I come, I'm going to be speaking on the mission of election. And they said, we'll invite you another year when we're doing a different conference. Think about this with me. Who was the great elect man of the Old Testament? Abraham. Did God say, I've chosen you because I love you and I don't love the world? I've chosen you in order to save you and your family, but no one. No, God said, I'm calling you. I want you to be mine so that through you and through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. When God called Israel to be a unique people, he said, I didn't choose you because, I love Moses who experienced this with the people. He said, I didn't choose you because you're more righteous than others. You're not more righteous, you're stiff-necked. I didn't choose you because you're larger and greater. No, you're like the least on the earth. I chose you to display my glory. Their call was to be a light to the nation. And when Israel forgot that and thought it was all about them, the Lord just let them be carried away by the nations. Jesus Christ came into the world as the ultimate elect one, the one who comes in our place, the seed of Abraham, to fulfill all of the promises. He came for the life of the world. He came to call not the righteous but sinners. He came to seek and save those who were lost. And as Paul begins to speak of our calling, he always links it to the ministry entrusted to us. So brothers and sisters, when this handover from Jesus to his church begins, it is with his sovereign call but his call is not for us to sit comfortably in our, our sense of assurance of our salvation. It is rather a call to join the family business. It's you are mine, and this is who we are, and now you're to be part of it. Second thing, and it's almost a little amusing to me whenever I read it, it's in verse 3. It said, for a period of 40 days, Jesus basically kept disclosing himself, revealing himself, letting them know that he was really alive. And it says through many proofs, and I sometimes in moments of mad humor think, what did he have to do, cartwheels? I mean, you know, pinch me again. Many convincing proofs. Why? Because unlike critics of Christianity who say, well, that was an earlier credulous generation, no. John Updike, I refer you again to his magnificent poem, Seven Stanzas at Easter, where he said it was not in the fuddled eyes of 
of an earlier group of people. They knew dead men didn't get up and rise. That's why when the women came and said, he's risen, they didn't believe him. Jesus appeared and appeared and appeared to them, and there was a continuity and discontinuity. They knew him, but he was changed somehow. But it was truly Jesus. And yet, even at the moment, at the end of Matthew's gospel, when they went to Galilee where he told them to meet him, and he's preparing to give them this great commission that we began the service with. If you read there, it says, they worshiped him and some doubted. So after 40 days, they were still, why? Because they were like us. They knew dead people don't get up. You know, how could this be? But he showed himself to them alive and it changed a band of cowards who had run from him while he was alive to a group of people who were willing to stand in that same city where he had been tried and crucified and proclaim the truth of his resurrection and the power and reality of his continuing presence by his spirit within his church. That's how he wants to convince people today. You say, yeah, but, I mean, they had him. He appeared to them. How do people now know him? The same way. You know, the the little children's catechism that some of us used back in the old days when our kids were growing up. I hope some of you still do. It's a wonderful little thing. But it does have a line about, does God have a body? No, God, God is a spirit and has not a body like man. And I was walking through the halls of Cedar Springs, the church I served for so long, and they had the kids out in the hall and were questioning them, catechizing them. And as I walked by and heard one of the women ask, you know, does God have a body? No, uh, God is a spirit and has not a body like men. It struck me and I thought, that's not true. God has a body. Jesus took our flesh and he didn't set it aside. There is today in the presence of the living God a man in glorified human flesh in trust for what we one day will become. And he calls us here on earth his body. We are the body of Christ. How are people to know that Christ is risen? They should know it by knowing us. The whole quality of the way that we do life should be so different. Yes, we're still broken. Yes, we still sin. Yes, we still fail and fall. And yet we should be on an entirely different trajectory of life from what we once were on before Jesus gripped us and made us new. In the midst of the culture wars, they should see a group of people who, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, whether they're conservatives or liberals, if they belong to Jesus Christ, relate to one another with love and compassion and conduct their debates in a different way than the world does. It was so moving uh, yesterday at the breakfast to hear this uh, lovely young missionary in Ukraine telling some of the stories. And you all have sent the, it's not you all, it's us all. I'm one of you. Um, uh, We sent these crates to Ukraine. 
And uh, to hear the testimonies, just a few coming back. I, I, I loved the, the story of the young couple who came to the church and said, we don't know anything about Jesus or about Christianity or any of this stuff, but we want to be numbered among you. We want you to be our people. Because in the midst of all this madness, you've come in here and loved us and and given us what we need to live. And we want to know why. We want to know what you believe. We want to be part of you. What had they encountered? They had encountered the risen Christ who is alive in the midst of his people. And that's how Annapolis should be seeing all of our churches. They should be looking and saying, see how they love one another. There is not a needy one among them. Brothers and sisters, and I, look, I was married for 48 years to the most patient, kind person in the world. Um, it's, it's a miracle. But I know what it is to have struggles and troubles in marriage. And I realize, too, that sometimes there is such, there's such toxic abuse that, that people need to be freed from violent and awful situations. I'm not denying that. But most of the time, that's not what's going on. We just don't get along and we're not willing to forgive and we're not willing to do what we promised to do, which is no longer to live for ourselves but to live for the other. And people need to be able to look at Christian people and say, how are they making it in the midst of this world? How are they doing it? We should not be the people yelling and screaming and carrying on over anything. Yes, stand for righteousness in the public square, but do it with such love and compassion and such a listening ear to try to understand those that are different that people at the end will say, I, I don't agree with much of what they're, but you know, I want, I'll give you one, one other story. We had uh, at a Unitarian church in Knoxville, a guy stood up with a gun. I didn't know Unitarians carried guns, but uh, I knew Presbyterians and Baptists did, but um, guy stood up with a gun and just began shooting people in, in the church. And I mean, it, it, the horror and brokenness, they tried to get out of there and it was just, it was horrible. And Cedar Springs people were the first to respond. Went down, helped clean out the church, helped provide care, bring in counselors, bring in, just to care for these people, began bringing meals, inviting them to come every day to lunch, to meals, just to talk. I mean, they just loved on them. And after about a week, one of our women, who's just, you know, just incredible. She'd be working with Marshall Hope if she lived here. But she's just, uh, you know, loving, giving. And several of the women had really attached to her. And, and they just said, you know, we, we don't understand why you're doing this for us. You know, we, we've heard about your church and, um, you know, the, the preacher there really believes that Jesus was God's son and rose from the dead and they kind of, you know, that, that you know, there's forgiveness of sins in him and all this stuff. I mean, I mean what do you believe, Kathy? And she just smiled at her and she said, pretty much all that stuff, you know? <laughs> well, all of a sudden, they had questions. Why? Because she had loved them well. They'd come face to face with the reality of the risen Christ. That's who we are called to be. Third, he said, 
don't try this at home. <laughs> he said, you know, you're not going to be able to do any of this until you receive the promised Holy Spirit, the power. You will receive power. The promise has been given. Now, very quickly, don't ever forget that the Holy Spirit was always present. That second verse in the Bible, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the Old Testament, we have the Spirit come on the prophets and, and, and speak, and people would pray. David, after he'd sinned so horribly with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Luke opens in the Old Testament, and we have people filled with, John's filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Uh, Zechariah, filled with the Spirit. His, his mouth is open and he prophesies about his son. Mary, filled with the Spirit, gives that beautiful hymn of Mary. So the Spirit was there, and yet in John chapter 7, Jesus, when he stood up, said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And whoever believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John says parenthetically, he was talking about the Spirit who had not yet been given, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. So what's that about? It's because you and I, from Pentecost on, have been given in the gift of the Holy Spirit all that Christ accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. It is a whole new experience of the Holy Spirit that the Old Covenant people never had. I mean, David, in spite of the horrible things he did, is still in the book of Acts called man after God's own heart. If Billy Graham had done those things, I think he would have been fired from the Billy Graham Association. I mean, totally different set of expectations today. Why? Because the reality, the Holy Spirit given to us at Pentecost is all that Christ is and has. He says, this is now yours. I join you to myself and I live in you. But again, back to how do people know that it's, that he's alive? Because we're the body of Christ, not alone. I am not the body of Christ. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, but I am just a member of the body of Christ. And I can only function when I'm joined to you. I missed you when I was away these past weeks. I'm, because when I'm here, I, I'm, I'm in the body of Christ, connected. It's not that we're no longer in the body, but to function, to do ministry, to care for each other, to love each other. We have to be connected. And the Spirit does that. He gives each of us unique gifts, none of them greater than others. Those who stand and preach, you know, we're, if we've done it to be seen and heard, he says, you've had your reward, you know. I'll be doing the lawn of those of you who've spent your lives quietly praying for other people. The tragedy of denominationalism, I've got to say it, is that we tend, and it came out of the whole kind of fuller church growth school of the 70s, homogeneity principle that if you want to grow churches fast anywhere in the world, don't try to put people who are different together. Get all your, your rich Christians of a certain cultural stripe over here and get these over there, and, and, and it's called the homogeneity principle. Grow churches fast by letting people just be with other people they're comfortable with. But what you get is not the church. 
what you get is a collection of body parts. So you got all the, you know, you got all the tongues over there in the assembly of God. You got, you know, all the, all the people who like more water over there with the Baptists. And, you know, I like, I like to think you got all the brains here with the Presbyterians. But, but a brain can't do anything without their, that's Paul's whole reason for using the analogy is that you have to have all these different parts working together in harmony, led by the Spirit. We are Christ's body and His Spirit empowers. Let me just ask you, do you know the work of the Spirit in your life today? Have you known it? And if not, and you're His, why not? Our enemy is always looking for just one place in our lives where he can get a toehold. And if he can get a toehold, then he wants a foothold. And if he can get a foothold, he wants a stronghold. And he wants to get at least one place where we are trusting something other than God for the meaning of our lives and for our security and for our comfort. And that's where we run when things are, are hard instead of running to the Lord. And what happens is that we read that the Spirit can be grieved and even outraged, outraging the spirit of holiness, and we lose the power of the spirit in our lives. And so we go to him again. My old friend Tim Keller's beautiful phrase, he said every morning, I repent my way back into joy. That's it. You get up and you say, Lord, here I am in all my brokenness. I don't know why you love me, but you do. And I... I pray that today, here where I want my way and there where I want my way, that I will be willing to die to what you have for me today because I know that as I die, you live in and through me. That's it. Final thing, fourth point. He showed them his plan. I'm, I used to always love to talk about you know strategy and strategic plans until... I shared this, I think, with some of you, that um, I was at a Lausanne meeting, and a group of, uh, of uh, Latin American scholars were there. And one of them said, John, we'd love to have you down, and we want to spend time with you, but um, you have to promise that even though you're an American, you won't come with a strategic plan for Latin America. <laughs> And I realized, what, you know, what a bunch of dopes we are. That's not, but the Lord did tell us what the plan is. It's his. And it's a series of concentric circles. The disciples said, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? Is this going to be the moment when, that we thought, you know, that was their disillusionment when Jesus was arrested. All the way to Jerusalem, Jesus had been telling them, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, handed over to my enemies. And all the way to Jerusalem, they were arguing over which would be greatest when they got there. And they think, now, okay, we get it. He had to do all of this, but now, now do I get to be chancellor of the exchequer? Now do, does, you know, does James get to, they're, they're still looking for positions of power here. And their, their huge mistake was both about time and about space. And so Jesus says, 
It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set by his authority. I grew up with the dispensational charts that spent all their time obsessing over the times and the seasons. First, this is going to happen, and then this, and then this. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know that. May I dare say, I don't think Jesus would attend a prophecy conference. He cares about mission conferences. He says, you shall be my witnesses. It's not for you to know that stuff. And also, they think it's the restoration of the physical ethnic Israel. But now, Israel's purpose in its ethnic sense has been done. The Messiah has come. The word, the Old Testament, has been given. The written word, the the word incarnate, the seed of Abraham, that's been fulfilled. And now Israel is going to include those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There aren't two different destinies. Just read Paul in Romans 11. He says Israel is an olive tree. And those who don't believe that the Messiah has come are cut off. Those that do believe remain. And you, like wild olive trees, have, have been cut off and grafted in to the to the one Israel, the olive tree. And and there you flourish. But he says, don't boast over the branches that have been cut off. And this is a little tough for us Reformed people to quite deal with. But he says, because if you stop believing, you can be cut off and they can be grafted back in. So, you know, I love that whole section. If we only had Romans 9, we'd all be Calvinists. If we only had Romans 10, we'd all be Arminian. If we only had Romans 11, we'd all be universalists. Because he ends the argument by saying, so God has delivered all men over to disobedience in order that he might have mercy on them all. And you go, wait a minute, Paul, how do I put 9, 10, and 11 together? And Paul's answer is, who has, who has known the mind of the Lord who's been his counselor? From him, through him, to him are all things to him be the glory now and forever. Amen. Theology ends in worship, in the worship of God. And the mystery, he says, you don't need to know that mystery. This is the revealed mystery that I'm going to begin right where you are in Jerusalem. And you witness to me in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Because his plan is for those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to be around the throne as envisioned by John in the Revelation, singing the song to the Lamb, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. So, I'm almost done. What does it look like? Well, in its first iteration, it looked just like that. It was geographic. It started in Jerusalem. It moved into Judea, and then it crossed into Samaria, and then missionaries like Paul took it around the Middle East, and churches were planted. In our day, with the church in various parts of the world, it's a series of concentric circles. Most of the people who were with us today, not all, but most in this conference, we were focusing on Jerusalem and Judea. And to some extent, Samaria. Jerusalem, my Jerusalem, yours now here, missionally, is the people, my people here, my peeps, you know, my friends, my family, 
people of my culture, my friendships, the people that I understand and am easy with. Judea is people just like this, but they're out a little further. They may, they may live over on the coast, you know, they may, but they're, if they came to town, they'd be our people, homogeneity. That's Jerusalem, Judea. But then we hit Samaria. Whoa, no thank you. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They considered the Samaritans unclean, these mixed breeds who'd been brought in by the, the Assyrians and put in the, where the northern kingdom had been. And so that's where I'm not so comfortable going to them. I hope somebody goes to them, but not, not I, Lord. But he says, I've entrusted them to you as well. What are you doing for them? How are you engaged at least in support and prayer and sending if you're not called to Samaria? And then the ends of the earth. So how have we done? This is... 2,000 years ago that he gave this. How have we done? The world back then is thought to have been considerably less than a billion people. And over the next 18 centuries, from 100 to 1900, it only grew to about 1.8 billion. But in the 20th century, it exploded from about 1.8 billion to six, six and a half billion. And in the first quarter of a century, it's exploded again, and we are now at 8 billion people in the world. A third of the people in the world, almost, about 2.5, 2.6 billion, claim to be Christian. Now, we know what that means. For many, it's, you know, they, they were baptized as children. They want to be married in the church and buried in the church. But still, their identity is Christian, and they live within an area where they can, they can hear the gospel proclaimed. But five and a half billion people don't profess Christ. Many of them of other religions, but one and a half billion are unreached, totally. No name of Jesus in their language, no word of God in their language. 1.5 billion people, far more than inhabited the earth when Jesus was here. And if you put it in terms of people groups, they're estimated to be 16, I think 16,000, is that 15, 16,000 people groups? And there are about 7,000 people groups as yet utterly unreached. No gospel, no nothing. Only 10% of people serving in mission are focused on the unreached. Now, thank God for all the people who've been called serving where God's called them. I'm not dissing that. I'm, I'm not with the unreached. But God wants them reached too, and he's entrusted that to us. In fact, if you look at the world and you say, who will stop Putin? Who will stop Xi? Who will stop the culture wars in our country? Who will end poverty and injustice? Who will end all of this? Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to every, and the word the gospel authors use in Greek is ethne. Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic, and it would have been something related to goi, goyim. It's the people groups. He said, first this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to every single people group, and then the end will come. So how do we patiently hasten the day of the Lord? To use Peter's mission. 
and particularly making sure that as part of our mission, we are aiming at every one of those concentric circles, including the outermost. It's estimated that American Christians spend 98% of our income on ourselves and average one penny a day for global mission. Now, that's because a few give and most don't. But if you prorate it out, if you go per capita, one penny a day by American Christians for global mission, one-tenth of that one penny goes to unreached peoples. So the average American Christian gives three cents a year to try to reach the unreached. And yet it's only when the unreached are reached that the end will come. It's not a guilt trip. It's an invitation. This is an invitation, brothers and sisters. Get the Operation World app on your phone or go online and get it. Every day they will give you another country to pray for and they'll tell you all about that country. You don't even have to, you just hit the app and it'll, it, in fact, if you hit I'm praying, it will tell you the number of other people praying with you at that minute. You begin with prayer. Jesus looked and said the fields are white for harvest. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his vineyard. But you and I are called also to be open to the possibility that some of us, some of you young people who want to do something significant with your lives, what could be more significant? than this, and for all of us to pray, to love these who've devoted their lives, to be all in, not just once a year at a mission conference, but every week, even every day praying. Pick those that you're going to pray for, those whose stories you're going to get to know. Connect with them. Go visit them if they would find it helpful, but give yourself to the only thing that will matter to you and me when we lie dying. Would you stand? Would you take a moment and respond from the heart to whatever God's Spirit may be saying to you today?